time for our children to head off for children's worship. Our epistle lesson for today is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's words for you. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast of our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually be willing to die. But God proves His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we can even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. We in the church, and I think it's especially true if we've been Christians for any considerable amount of time, we speak in code words. We have a language we use. We don't mean to. It's theological language or maybe it's biblical language or maybe it is simply the cultural language of the Bible Belt. All of those things exist, you know. And it's not clear that everybody has any idea what we're talking about when we use them. Language is way more complicated than we act like it is. And sometimes when we use those kinds of words and phrases, we leave people out. And that's not a very hospitable thing for us to do. We preachers are among the worst. Sometimes I will, in the middle of a sermon, say, you remember the story in the Bible when? And I act as if you remember all the things I remember. Well, what if you don't remember it? What if it's a story you don't know? You sit there and you say, well, gee, I must be the dumbest person in this room. I don't know what he's talking about. It's as if one of our physicians begins to spout off the language of medicine to me, especially the abbreviations. I don't have a clue. Now, I'm not that dumb. It's just a language I don't necessarily know. And that brings us to the lesson for today. A man was talking with his minister, and he says to her, I must be the most ignorant person in your congregation because I'm not really sure I know what salvation means. We hear it all the time in church. What is salvation? Now, I have an idea that this is not the only person who would ask that kind of a question. Like all organizations, I said, we've got our buzzwords. 
And we assume, and you know what happens when you assume, we assume that everybody knows what that means. But the truth is, not everybody does. And if they do, they're not all going to use the same kind of language. Now, for me, the, the, the first, the simplest, the easiest way is I want to give you a definition in just a few words or a few sentences and move on. But I'm not sure that's helpful. Simple definitions that are all around us oftentimes are not the things that really help us understand. And what better time to begin to explore this sort of language than now in our time of Lent. And so this morning, rather than examine various theories of the atonement, because I don't really want to do a theological lecture, I want us to talk about what does salvation mean by asking, what does it mean in terms of what a friend of mine called the three tenses or the three forms, the past, the present, the future. So first, what does it mean in the past? Well, like most things, we explain it better when we use story. The minister was visiting with a man one day who had a pretty sordid past. As a young man, he had gotten into trouble with a group that was not so much immoral as they were amoral. They didn't much care what anybody thought, and so they broke the laws of state and God equally well. They cared no more for anything and eventually he ends up in prison. And while he's there, he has this encounter with Jesus through somebody else. And in his conversation, he keeps saying, I thank God that he saved me. I thank God that he saved me. For him, salvation is primarily a transaction that happened in the past. That's a valid thing. But it's where he's released from the burden of sin and guilt. He's given an opportunity for real life, a life that's lived with God. And that's surely one of the ways we want to talk about it, isn't it? Paul does that in the text I read for you today. While we were still helpless, or while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he talks about how rare it would be for that to happen for a good person when it happens for somebody who is totally failed, it's even more impressive. So if we want to come right to the point, salvation is something that God does. We don't earn it. We don't do it. It's something that God does in which we are forgiven, or if you prefer, made right with God through this incarnate God who comes in the form of Jesus and dies upon a cross. Now, that's not new to us. We've heard that a thousand times. But maybe, maybe we understand it better if we hear it in story form again. I, I occasionally ask these questions, and I, I get myself in trouble when I do. Who here knows Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, I've got a couple of folks who do. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> um, literature is, an, is a wonderful thing, and I urge you to read more of it. Written by a fellow named John Bunyan, it is an allegory about the Christian life. And in it, he has a character whose name, oddly enough, is Christian, who is setting out on this long journey toward the celestial city. Does that sound familiar? 
And he says that it's a tough load because Christian is carrying this enormous weight upon his back. And he struggles uphill and downhill through the rivers and across the swamps. And he says that as he is walking, he suddenly comes to a hill. And on the hill at the bottom is a tomb. And on the top of the hill, there is a cross. And then this is what Bunyan says. And then I saw in my dream that as Christian came to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders. It fell off his back and began to tumble until it came into the mouth of the, of the sepulchre where it fell in and I saw it no more. And then Christian was glad and light of heart. He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then he stood still for a while and looked in wonder, and it surprised him that the sight of the cross should lift his burden. Wonderful, wonderful allegory. I don't think anybody does it better except maybe C.S. Lewis in the 20th century. But he's right when his character, Christian, expresses surprise. In every age, from the beginning to now, people are surprised that the cross seems to have power. I want to say just two things about that. And the first is that in the cross we see what our failings, sin if you will, costs God. Yeah. It costs God for us to be redeemed. Jesus goes to that cross for us. We know that. We know how difficult it is to overcome a breach in human relationships when one person has betrayed another. Surely how much more serious that condition is when humanity has shown its indifference to God. Human analogies, again, always fall short, but let me try another one and see if this one works. There was a young man who had been given a very good university education. His parents were not wealthy. They had scrimped. They had saved. They sent him to school. They helped him to set up his business when he was out of the university. And the honest truth was he was wasting both his education and his business life. He drank way too much. He spent way too many nights out instead of thinking about what he ought to be thinking about. He did all the things that sometimes young adults engage in. And then one day, his parents were suddenly killed in an automobile accident. He didn't cause it. He had nothing to do with it. But as the sole heir, it comes to him to have to fix the estate. That's the way that thing works, right? And so as he is opening his parents' financials, he comes to realize how his parents have scrimped and saved and done nothing for themselves. This entire time, they've been trying to help him, quote, get on his feet. But he's embarrassed. He's ashamed, as well he ought to be. 
Shame doesn't do us any good unless we're able to move on from the idea of shame. And he makes up his mind that if his parents are willing to put this much effort into him, he is going to attempt for the rest of his life to make his parents, now gone, proud of what he could Our sin costs God. We don't like that idea very much. We don't talk about it very much in Presbyterian churches, but it's true. And then Paul says, the proof of God's amazing love is this, that while you were sinners, and if you really want to get the concept of what he means there, it's while you were flaunting your sin in God's face, Christ died for us. And that's where we begin to discover the depths of the love. That kind of love, if it doesn't get to us, I don't know what will. But it's not enough to talk about salvation as something that happened back then. Salvation is something that's ongoing. It's in our lives as a part of who we are now if it's real. It's not enough for us to think about it as something that happened back in the past or something that will happen down in the future. If it's not making a difference in who we are today, in the way we live, in the way we interact, then we are missing so much of what faith and what this whole idea of salvation has for us anyway. What we're really saying, what the Scripture tells us is that Christ for us when we are found by Him is living in us. Now, I confess, some days I don't look very much like Christ is living in me. And you don't either, because I see you and you see me. And we just don't always look that much like it. But it is a part of what we strive to be. It is the way we, not repay, but it's a way we show our devotion back to the one who's come to redeem us. There are an awful lot of people who turn away from Christianity, turn away from this idea of a Savior, because the truth is they find those of us who claim the faith to be boring. We are those folks who think we're better than other people. Maybe, maybe not. We are those who are goody-two-shoes. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But what I do know is this, if the faith is not impacting us now in ways that make us positive, then the faith isn't doing us very much good. If salvation isn't affecting us now and making us better people to the people around us, to our children, to our co-workers, to the world at large, If you look in the New Testament, Jesus is one of the most dynamic people who ever lived. 
Jesus loved to go to parties. Boy, we struggle with that idea. Does anybody think Jesus walked around Palestine for three years with a long look on his face saying, Oh my, the end is near. I don't think so. Now, certainly as we come into this season, we understand that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing he was going to die. But even in the midst of that, we don't find that, Oh, woe is me. It is a choice. Everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed him. He is the most dynamic personality I suspect that has ever lived. And if we make a caricature of this person, then we have absolutely missed the boat. One writer says this, This I know, if one's religion does not make his heart merry and his life whistle and his spirit rejoice, it is not the religion of Jesus Christ. Religion that is freighted with sob stories and funeral dirges that majors in what is wrong with the world while overlooking the things that are right is not the faith of Jesus Christ. Religion that is summed up in more don'ts than do's. One that harps on what must be given instead of the privilege it is to take up. Does not remotely resemble Jesus Christ or the faith. The present tense of salvation is Christ living in us. And if that is not happening every day in who we are and how we look at life, then we really are missing the mark. It's not just in the past. Paul discovered in his own experience when he was imprisoned in Rome, he writes in the letter to the Philippians, I know how to live when things are difficult and how to live when things are prosperous. I've learned the secret of phasing out of poverty or plenty. I am able to do all things through the one who gives me strength. But of course, salvation is not just in the past and it's not just in the present. There's also the future, the future tense. In the church, we spend an awful lot of time sometimes on the future. You know, pie in the sky and the sweet by and by sort of thing. And yet there's something very real about this idea of salvation as something that will occur. It's been some years ago now, but I was visiting with a woman who was dying of cancer. And one of the things that she kept saying was, I know I will be saved. Future tense. Well, she meant a couple of things by that, I think. She meant I will be saved from the consequences of what I've done wrong, that separation from God. But secondly, I think she meant I will be saved to live with God in eternity. I know there are those who don't believe that concept anymore. But I think it is heart and soul a part of who we are as Christians. 
And then she asked me to read a piece of Romans. Not the piece I read this morning, but out of Romans 8. We've read that so often, especially in funeral services. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not hold back his own son, but gave him for us, will he not give us all things? And then Paul lists all the things that might separate you from God. Death, life, angels, principalities, the present, things to come, powers, height, depth. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's what it means for the future. Now, if you walk out of here and you say, well, he never did give us a definition, did he? No, he didn't. Because as I said, to define is to limit. And we are not capable of limiting God. But if you want a down, quick, and dirty, easy definition of what is salvation, it really has to do with a God who loves you enough to do whatever it takes to bring you home. That's Lent. That's what takes us to Easter. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.